This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Here, uh, just me today, Dr. Wang is unfortunately traveling in the air as we speak, but I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Casey Halpern. Dr. Halpern is a functional neurosurgeon at the University of Pennsylvania, who, if any of our listeners are podcast fiends like myself, you may know was recently featured on the Andrew Huberman, uh, the Huberman Lab podcast, uh, where he did a long and in-depth discussion about his work at the University of Pennsylvania, some experimental avenues of deep brain stimulation and other areas of research he's working on, which I will put a link to that in this episode. I would point all of our listeners to that interview. It was a phenomenal conversation. Uh, but as I was listening to it, I thought Dr. Halpern did such a great job talking about one of the more esoteric areas of neurosurgery that I'd be interested in talking to him about talking about his work and exploring how neurosurgeons communicate some of the more complicated and out there things that we do. Dr. Halpern, really delighted to have you on the show. Why don't you uh, take a moment and introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, thanks, uh, John Paul. It's an honor to be here. And uh, this is a great podcast that you do. Thank you for doing that. I'm a big fan of uh, Dr. Wang's as well. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to sort of discuss uh, these matters. Deep brain stimulation is sort of my area of expertise. I also treat patients with movement disorders with focused ultrasound. I'm very lucky at Penn to be able to deeply subspecialize in these two areas, sort of the minimally invasive side of neurosurgery. And um, luckily also, um, yeah, these, these treatments tend to have transformative effects for our patients. I've always found them very inspiring, which is sort of why I, why I do them, but also why I explore new indications for these areas. Great. And I'll, I'll say for our listeners, I caught Dr. Halpern between flights today. He was kind enough to talk to me while he's uh, at a connection at an airport. So forgive us the background noise, but your voice is coming through loud and clear. So listening to you on the Huberman podcast, what I was most struck by was this idea of how to communicate these really complicated things that we do. And in particular, the very complex things that, that you're doing with novel targets for deep brain stimulation. And so Obviously, we all talk to patients every day and try to explain the anatomy and the surgical decision-making for what we offer them. But in a venue like that, you're talking to probably scientifically literate people, but people who may not be within the field of medicine. And so, you know, if they're physicists or chemists or undergraduates in those fields, they don't know brain anatomy and neurophysiology like we do. Uh, or even if they are physicians, they're, you know, they're literate, but not in our world day in and day out. So when you get approached by someone like Andrew Huberman and, and to say, okay, come on to my massive venue, talk to my audience who will know some terms, but don't know as much about the day-to-day -day of what you're doing and the ins and outs of it. What's your first thought? What's your strategy about how to effectively communicate the things that you're doing and researching? You know, really, you know, John Paul, it, it, these are some of the challenges that we have every day in the clinic when we talk to our patients and their families. Um, occasionally, a, a family member has a medical background that can be super helpful. Um, a nurse or a doctor in the family can help explain rationale and justification because to a non-medical listener, a lot of things that we do are not necessarily logical, obviously, in our field. And if you practice this day by day, Many of our decisions seem quite logical, but to a, an audience that doesn't have that background, it can be a challenge. It can be a challenge to 
doctors who aren't in our field. And it can even be a challenge to neurosurgeons who don't practice functional neurosurgery to fully understand things. And that's the importance of deep subspecialization in our fields. But we do have to be able to communicate what we do to our patients, to our audiences. Uh, So I I appreciate the question. I can tell you, I can't say I know how to do it. I I certainly do my best. And I, I, I struggle with it just like everybody. Um, it's important to listen to, to the audience as well and get feedback and adjust because some people listen and re- respond to things differently. Uh, I can tell you, you know, when Dr. Huberman reached out to me, he is a good friend from Stanford and his podcast is iconic. Um, and yes, they have a huge following. My, my goal there was to follow his lead, really, and uh, mm. kind of let him set the tone on the conversation. But I suppose I uh, also wanted to ensure that everything I was describing about my clinical work and my research uh, would be understood by his audience. Um, so it's a, it's a little bit of, you know, being a good listener as well, following people's leads. But, you know, in that case, I was following Andrew's lead. But sometimes when I'm in the clinic, I follow my patient's lead and I allow them to sort of set the tone with their questions. And sort of how they ask the questions is sort of how I try to answer it. Um, but it is a very sort of dynamic flow. And I, I can't say I feel like I know how to do it, but I certainly do my best. And uh, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully people seem to understand and respond well to, to the, the surgeries that I try to propose to patients and to the research I'm trying to do. Yeah, I, I've got to say that's a very wise move. Uh, on the one hand, on his podcast, letting him take the lead because he knows his audience. And so he'll kind of show you, here's the level of specificity and the kind of terms we can use. But of course, when seeing someone in the clinic, this is something we talk about a lot on the show, how in residency, we learn so well how to operate, but the bedside manner, the, the clinic persona, if you will, is something that we really don't get towards the very end. Once you know all the operations, then you learn how to, not to put it crassly, but how to talk someone into trusting you to go through with it, right? And so that it's really interesting to see the parallels between those two um venues of conversation i wonder oh yeah sorry yeah i was just gonna say you know i i I agree with you these skills are critical to practice you know residents medical students will practice them on their sub internships and their rotations in medical school residents practice it during bedside rounds in the morning and they're always sort of rushing to the next patient to stay on time because they have to get to the operating room so they have to do it efficiently as well it's it's an enormous learning curve uh, but so critical. And I'll, I'll just give you one example. When I describe a, a deep brain stimulation surgery to a patient with Parkinson's, uh, the way I describe it is very different than the way a neurologist might describe deep brain stimulation to a Parkinson's patient. You usually see the patients first. And a lot of times patients are, are terrified of a surgery like this when they leave the, the room of a neurologist. And that's not because the neurologist said anything wrong. But it really does require practice to describe surgery to patients. And I would say it also requires experience of the surgery itself to describe a surgical procedure to a patient in a way that doesn't terrify them. And and it shouldn't terrify them, although obviously it's understandable that it does. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Oh, no, not at all. Um, I I think that's a really good and and salient point to make. I, I have noticed extensively, oftentimes working in the ICU hand in hand with the dedicated ICU team, the way they will talk to patients and families about various surgeries that we offer is very different from the way that we talk about them, not only in terms of the risks, but the possible benefits and what the uh, what the surgery itself entails, obviously, because we're the ones in the room doing it every day. So we kind of see that directly. Um, one of the things that I love 
that I think we're very good about in neurosurgery, some more than others, but I think as a field, it's kind of baked into our culture. I think Roberto Harris had a lot to do with that, is talking about complications. And so what struck me hearing, um, hearing you talk about the experience in clinic where it's we all love when there's a medically literate person or a medical professional in the family because you can kind of use them to translate as someone that the patient trusts and, and they can help you communicate more effectively. But I wonder if there's a flip side of that, if you can recall any time where when you met a patient in clinic and you were trying to explain these complex physiologically based procedures, it, you really had a failure of communication. And it, you, know, you could call it a conversational complication, if you will, to be glib. But I wonder if you can think of some time maybe early on in your functional practice where the person just wasn't getting it. You just weren't bridging that gap of communication and how you got around that or if that taught you anything about speaking with people. Yeah, I can give you an example that comes to mind, actually. It, it, it in some ways brings a sort of a, a smile to my face when I think of it because it is a hmm. It's kind of a funny story, but it, it ended up being a little bit disappointing, but we ended up closing the loop on it, which is why I'm, I'm able to smile about it now. But so I'll tell you that story. Uh, my father's a, a, an accountant, a CPA, so I'm, I'm very cognizant of tax season and the pressures an accountant has during, during tax season. And I had a patient with Parkinson's when I was still at Stanford University, severe tremor in his hand. He was in his you know, lower, like 72 years old, I think. We try to do this surgery when somebody is appropriate for it as young as possible. So I was really encouraging him to consider it. His tremor was so bad. And he said to me, well, um, I've got tax season coming up. Um, so I can't really do it now, but maybe after tax season. And, you know, I knew exactly when tax season was over. And I offered him literally like the first date available right after tax season. And he took it. And uh, he ended up calling me the next day. We had a really nice chat. And so I was very perplexed because he called us the next day and he canceled the surgery. Hmm. I got him on the phone and I said, you know, uh, I'm just curious. You know, we had a nice conversation. Uh, I thought you understand, you know, the risks and benefits of this. Can I just ask why you canceled? So I, I could just better understand your perspective. And, and he said, well, you know, I talked to my wife about it. And she said, you know, while the benefits sounded great, it wasn't worth me, you know, dying on the table, putting myself in that risk. And I said, you know, sir, I mean, they're, they're, of course, I, I mean, we discussed the complication rate, but, but people don't die on the table in elective brain surgery anymore. Of course, you can have a devastating complication. You know, the risk of that's probably a little less than 1%, but it's possible. But dying on the table just seems like a bit of an extreme concern uh, when you're trying to do something for your quality of life. And he said, yeah, I, you know, happy wife, happy life. It's, she's, she's the boss. And... <laughs> She's not really willing to talk to you about it either. She's kind of terrified of the idea. And that was it. And I, I had no way of, you know, educating her. She didn't give me that opportunity. Um, it was more just her fear around it. You know, fast forward one year, almost exactly, he came back to me. Of course, his tremor was even worse. And he was one year older. And she was there in the office. And I basically, you know, embraced their concerns of, uh, gave them a solid hour of time. And, you know, usually our hospitals only give us about 30 minutes to talk to patients. Uh, but in that one hour of time, I think I was able to gain her trust. 
Uh, and she proceeded with the surgery, well, or I should say, allowed her husband to proceed with the surgery as, as an advocate for him. Right. And uh, he did terrific. Uh, you know, I, I'm still in touch with him, uh, even though now I'm at uh, Penn in Philadelphia. And uh, it just kind of brought to my attention two important things when it comes to these kinds of surgeries. If somebody comes alone, try to get a family member or a friend on the phone so that they can help coach that patient through to the surgery because most people just want to help and i'm sure his wife was just nervous and had the absolute best intentions for her husband i mean they clearly had a wonderful marriage it but she was not fully informed and she was terrified of the idea of brain surgery and i guess i understand that of course but it would have been nice to have that opportunity the first time around to educate her so now i i try to ensure family members present i have my staff request that patients do not come alone um and even now in the days of zoom and you know teams we can you know have people sort of uh, zoom in for a call uh, informally on a cell phone for example uh, uh, or i have a family member present and, you know to add to that kind of the other side of your question i think we need time to explain these procedures to patients well you know our patients have what most people consider an elective problem although a lot of people are really bothered by these elective problems like tremor and parkinson's disease uh, but you know they're not necessarily life-threatening diseases like a like a brain tumor and so we need time to explain these procedures to patients and their families and the hospital structure and how we're given time to talk to our patients it doesn't coincide well with the amount of time these patients need to synthesize and understand the surgery why we're doing it the potential benefits what our decision making is what the risks are and how to weigh the risks and benefits so I, I frequently run late in my clinic, and I try to warn my patients that you know it's necessary uh, to to run late and, and potentially wait for me in clinic because I don't have the time in the day built into the structure of the clinic to offer every patient the time they need to synthesize, synthesize this information. So it uh, sometimes requires a return visit or a follow-up visit uh, by phone to to really educate people. But I I find that if you give patients the time, then you can gain their trust and uh, they will follow through on things that are probably in their best interests. Sure. And I wonder if you could say a word about the difference in those conversations you have for one of your experimental or novel target DBS surgeries, as opposed to a straightforward tried and true, you know, STN DBS for Parkinson's. So how, how do you talk differently with your patients when you're signing them up for an experimental target or a new procedure? Sure. You know, first of all, there's a lot of overlap. Um, you know, when we consent people for our research studies, mine are all surgical clinical trials. You know, we, we consent them for the surgical procedure, but we also consent them for the research study. When, when we're discussing the surgical procedure, it's almost identical. Uh, but when we're discussing the research protocol, that's where it gets really in-depth. And, and really, patients have to understand that they are volunteering to be part of a research study that may or may not offer them benefit, but it will certainly offer a greater scientific understanding and uh, likely uh, knowledge to improve the greater good. Uh, a lot of patients are very willing to to sort of be heroes in that way. Uh, they really are the uh, most critical member of the team and sort of the MVP of a, of a research program are the patients that are, are willing to undergo the risks of a surgery with unknown benefits. However, the patients that we select for these kinds of surgeries have tried everything. 
Uh, they have failed uh, all available medications, uh, potential other therapies, conservative measures, potentially even other less uh, invasive or better understood surgeries uh, before they undergo a surgery like deep brain stimulation for obesity, which is what I was discussing on the human podcast. Right. Uh, so, so ethically, uh, we have a team involved to help ensure that these patients have capacity to consent, and we review that offline with video. Uh, we want to make sure that patients feel properly educated as to all of the research batteries and, and the surgical procedure uh, before they proceed. So it's a, it's a bit more of a complex conversation, uh, but the, the critical piece is that patients have to be willing to be volunteers in an experimental procedure with unknown benefits to them, although clear opportunities for scientific advancement. Got it. Well, I will say as our time draws to a, to a close here, I occasionally for this show will do a bit of homework for a guest. And I, I did in your case, I really enjoyed the portion of your conversation with Dr. Huberman where you talked about health lifestyle, weightlifting, you know, can neurosurgeons deadlift, um, meditation and, and your, your new approach to health and lifestyle with your wife, who I think you said was a health coach. But uh, something that did not come into the conversation that I unearthed was your association with the Mask and Wig Club there in Philadelphia. So I wonder if you could take a maybe a quick minute to just tell our listeners about the Mask and Wig Club. What is that? What's your role with them? I appreciate you doing the homework, John <laughs> That, that I'll admit, when I talked about deadlifting with Andrew Huberman on his podcast, where there could be up to a million listeners uh, in 30 days, I was I hesitated to disagree with him, but uh, I I, I kind of went in head first and, and told him I, I felt deadlifting could be safe under proper supervision for neurosurgeons and 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 you know, the general public. But in any case, that's a separate uh, discussion regarding mask and wig. You know, I. I play the saxophone. Uh, my grandfather gave me my first musical instrument when I was in fourth grade. He went to Juilliard. It was a clarinet. And I wasn't as much of a classical uh, musician as I was more of a jazz saxophonist and uh, played the band in high school, college. And when I, when I got to college, I joined this club called the Masquerade Club, partly because they had this incredible band. And they rehearsed in the dormitory that I lived when I was a freshman at Penn. Uh, so I could hear them all the time. So I, I ended up auditioning and, and I got in and I found out after the fact that this was a band that was kind of like the Saturday Night Live band. So they, they played sort of for a uh, comedy troupe uh, called the Masked Week Club. And it was sort of a fraternity, quite honestly. And, uh, you know, we did a lot more than just, you know, putting on shows, but we put on a lot of shows, uh, fall and spring shows, and the band had lots of gigs. And uh, it's actually how I met my wife because she sang for us. So, you know, it was a, uh, a really fun thing in college. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I, I would encourage all of our listeners to look into the Mask and Wig Club. In, in the little reading I did, it's a very prestigious and very old uh, comedic troupe uh, going back to the 19th century. So very impressive. Well, Dr. Halper, I, I know you have to catch another flight. Um, for our listeners, uh, everyone who listens to our show knows that we're huge fans of Penn. We've had Dr. Grady on. We've had one of your newest colleagues, uh, Ian Cahigas, on, a, a brother in arms from Miami who obviously is in your line of work and, and recently joined you there. Um, he's one of the best people I know in or outside of the field, so that's a great asset to your team. Um, but like I said, I really enjoyed listening to you talk on the Huberman podcast, and uh, I really appreciate your time and openness kind of exploring that side of what we do, not just what we do, but how we talk about it. So 
safe travels today, Dr. Casey Halpern. Thank you so much for coming on the Neurosurgery Podcast. Such a pleasure, John Paul. Thanks again. This is a great thing you're doing. So uh, thanks for having me. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.